Let's go to Ezekiel 22. And we'll begin at verse 17. We were in this text last Sunday. And uh, a really, really good thing happened. Oh, actually, a really, really thing, a thing that happens commonly happened on Sunday, which is your pastor preached an imperfect sermon. Um, but I had one of, one of your ruling elders uh, called me and talked to me about it. We reflected on it together. And with his help, I came to the conclusion that it was an unfinished sermon. There was still work to be done. There was still uh, law and gospel to be mined out of the text. And it was, a, it was an encouraging kind of admonition to say that, that was a, it was a fine sermon, but it wasn't finished. There were some really, really important places you didn't go. And upon examination, he's right. And so this is part of the work of the elder to make sure that uh, the, um, the shortcomings of the pastor are blunted as much as possible. And broadly speaking, your elders are really good at blunting my shortcomings. And so I'm very, very thankful for them. Uh, So going to chapter 22, beginning in verse 17, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow on the fire in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath. I'll put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with fire, the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it as silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it. You shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have poured out my wrath upon you. And so again, we were in this text last week. We're going to spend a bit more time on this idea in the text of, of the nature of, or the, the picture of God as one who works in metal refinement to get all the gunk out, to get all the junk out so that the only thing remaining or left behind is the gold, or in this case, the silver, either metaphor works, that God means uh, to be left behind. There are at least three things I want to share with you this morning about this metaphor that appears in other places in Scripture, and we're going to go there uh, in just a moment to those other places. Pardon me. Uh, And so there's good news, there's bad news, and there's really good news, right? So we're going to move back and forth between those good news, bad news, and really and, and, and really good news, the best news. So we're going to start with good news. Good news is that God is in the business of refining. Okay? And you see that in the text. The Lord speaks of himself, I told you last week, as a divine metallurgist. He is the one who's doing the refining of his people. The problem is, is the diagnosis of his people. Right? You might remember uh, from the text, he says in verse 18, The house of Israel has become dross to me, all of them. Are and then you start looking for gold and silver and you can't find it. Bronze, tin, iron, lead in the furnace. Translation, the, the junk that gets washed away. And so it is a problem with humans, a problem with Israel in particular at this point in their history, that is, it's this issue of, you know, where can I find a, a godly man in all of Israel? Is there anyone left? They've all become dross. In uh, Proverbs 17.3, we read, The crucible is for silver. And the furnace for gold. That should be our next bit. No? 
Okay, my mistake. Um, so just believe me when I say it. it's Proverbs 17.3. You can look it up. Uh, the crucible is for silver. The furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. The Lord is the one who tests the heart. Okay? And so what does that mean? It means that just as, again, the impurities are removed, that is what God is in the business of doing for you, beloved. That's really good news, by the way. I don't know, I mean, what I, what I tried to sell you on last week, tried to sell you on, tried to convince you of, not a good thing for a pastor to say, I apologize. It's why I don't wear a suit, so you don't confuse me for a businessman. Um, what the Lord is, is intent on doing is removing impurities from you, from your heart, from your spirit. If you've tried to do that yourself, you know it's really difficult. So this promise from God that He's going to do it is really good news. Psalm 66, For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us. It's put us through the trial as silver is tried. Job 23.10 as well. He knows the way that I take. When He has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So here's putting putting his trust in the Lord, saying he knows the way I take. So also there's a confession underneath there. I don't know the way that I take. When the Lord has tried me, when he's put me through this trial on the way that I am taking, that I don't fully understand, but the Lord does, I will come out as gold because of what he's doing with me. And so for some of you, what does this refinement look like? I think for, for a lot of people in many different situations, the burden that we face is, I mean, for some, it's some kind of maybe deep struggle that has pursued you for a long time. Some kind of dark secret that maybe you're keeping for yourself or on behalf of your family. Uh, some, some things like this. I mean, I, I have known sometimes that families can, as it were, promise together to hold on tight to the dark secrets so that none of it gets out and that their bad name isn't shamed. But I want to tell you that the devil has three really powerful weapons to keep you in slavery to sin or to use Ezekiel's language to keep you covered in the dross. One is this this slow progress or rather digress that happens in life where a, a, a sin that you engage in becomes a habit. The habit becomes a need the need becomes a right that you demand, and then the right becomes an identity. I'm going to go through that again. If you're taking notes, you might want to get that. process is that sin becomes a habit. Okay? The habit becomes a need. The need becomes a right. It's my right. And then, and then the, the right becomes an identity. You base your whole sort of meaning of life existence around it. That's one really powerful weapon, just the the slow kind of sinking into this definition or rather redefinition of my sin, not as dross that needs to be consumed, but as a bad habit. Not as dross that needs to be consumed, but as a need, and then a right, and then an identity. Uh, The second really powerful weapon is resignation and hopelessness. Just this perhaps sin pattern or besetting sin has been on my back has been in my life for most of my life. Or maybe, maybe, it's also been in my parents' life, in my grandparents' life, or my great-grandparents. I mean, this is a generational thing I can trace. And what am, I, what am I to do with that? Who am I to go up against that kind, of, that kind of weight, that kind of monster? The answer is 
you, you a nobody. Um, you've not been called to slay those giants, but Jesus has. Yeah. Well, third, and this is, a, this is a big one, thinking your sin is special, right? And that if you confessed it, it would be really shocking or, um, or just nobody would know what to do with you because you're just beyond the, you're outside the realm of regular sinners with our regular boring sins. And everybody goes from day to day committing their regular boring sins, but not you. You're like outside the circle doing something really dreadful, really dark, really horrible that nobody could understand, that nobody could, could grasp why you would have been. And you're just, you're just beyond help for that reason. It's actually a, a, a fantastic lie of the devil that a lot of people believe, and it keeps them in isolation, and it keeps them from confessing their sin. I've seen it so many times. And, and if that's you, what you need to know this morning is that your sin is deadly, yes, but your sin is also boring. It's just boring. It's really not impressive. Like, you, you're not special. Whatever your sin is, it's not special. At, at its root, it's a regular old boring violation of the Ten Commandments. It will still destroy you in the end, but it's boring. It's not special. So, so, so come, and, come and get help. Come and confess your sin. Come and know Jesus Christ who heals you because your sin is not special. So those are three really powerful weapons I want you to be aware of, that in the process of God refining us, things that get in the way of that, those three things. So that's, that's the good news, that God is in the business of refining, and that's really good news because we really make a mess of it if we're left to just refine ourselves. The bad news is, that you see pretty well in this Ezekiel text, is that refining hurts. And if you think about it, if, if we want to call refining a sort of growth and maturity metaphor, which I do. Uh, a lot of growth and maturity metaphors involve like pain, if you think about them long enough. So like some, one, one growth and maturity metaphor is pruning, right? Where some branches get cut off so that the plant can be healthy and grow. Or, hey, we even have this thing called growing pains, right? <laughs> that like if, if you're hurting and you're growing, it's, well, that's, I mean, it hurts, but it's not a, it's, it's, that's part of the system. That's like kind of how the, this thing is constructed. Um, it's, it's a sign that everything's working even though it really hurts. Or even think of, um, even think of like uh, whittling. So if you take a just ugly piece of wood and whittle it into something really beautiful, what are you doing? I mean, you're cutting pieces off to shape it into something really beautiful. Refinement is kind of like that. Now, this is a challenge for us. Texts like this are a challenge for us. Texts like this that say things like, because you've become dross, I will gather you in. Uh, And he calls them, essentially, he's calling them garbage. Bronze, iron, lead, tin, into the furnace. And so their sin has brought this judgment. And it's also, in, in the present moment, brought suffering into Jerusalem. And they're demanding to know why they're being mistreated. <laughs> this is a challenge, I think. When it's when any kind of suffering comes into our life. It's a challenge. Because we naturally kind of anticipate happiness or, or equilibrium. So like more than a few counseling meetings that I've had revolved around, I am not happy. And just what exactly is that about? <laughs> right? So in, in, in God's direction. Like I'm rather unhappy and that was not part of the deal. And that impulse, in one sense, is like perfectly understandable because you were made, I mean, think Genesis 1 and 2. You were made to know God, to live with Him forever. Adam and Eve in the garden had lives where they could reasonably anticipate joy and blessing. 
that's still in your, you might say that's part of the image of God, I'm not sure, but, but it's in some sense that's still stamped on your soul. It's why we all hate it when somebody dies, because there's this raging inside of us that this ought not be. We live in a fallen world then, a Genesis 3 broken world, ruined by the first sin, and then marred and tarnished by all the other sins that were descendants of the first sin. What Christians thought through the centuries and have done with that information is basically they've said, you ought to be at least as surprised by your joys and blessings as you are by your afflictions. In Job chapter 2, after his wife, he and his wife had been through the waves of affliction, in her pain and anger, she told, God, uh, she told Job to curse God and die. Job's answer is profound. In the midst of his grief, he says, kind of don't talk like that. That's crazy talk. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we really receive good from God? But not evil. The Hebrew word there means uh, calamity or uh, 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 terrible event. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other word. Calamity, tragedy, uh, that sort of thing. Shall we not receive difficulty? Shall we not receive affliction and tragedy? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We are tempted to believe that our good times are our due And our hard times are some sort of weird oversight in heaven's record-keeping department. We, We all have the ability to be surprised when affliction comes. Questions swirl, right? Why now? Why me? Why this? But probably the big one is how long? When blessing comes, though, not as surprising... Health comes, comfort comes, material provision comes, success and work comes, and again, we're tempted to just say, well, of course. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be that way, right? That's what I deserve. And, and I know, my dear conservative friends, we all get triggered by the word deserve. Somebody throws out the word deserve, and we say, no, 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 we don't believe that. Everything we get is grace. And I get that we all put that on our spiritual resume. I am a sinner by grace and deserve nothing. Right? I agree. You don't. But then, but then in actuality, in practice, we, we have a temptation to live as though we deserve quite a lot, even if we don't say it that way with our, with our words. When bad times come, uh, in one sense we hurt, and there's no sin in that. But there's also this, this why me? Um, what have I done to, to, to deserve this? When, when good times come, sometimes we don't say anything because good times are consistent with our expectations. When our Lord Jesus through his apostles, has told us something very important. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. That's refiner language. Okay? You think back to, He has tried us as gold, as silver in the furnace. The fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So here's Peter basically trying to calibrate your expectations as a Christian, right? Calibrate your expectations as a Christian. And so that when that when these times come, you say, "Oh, this is what the Lord does." This is what the Lord does. What does the Lord do with his sons, right? Well, he does with his sons what he's been doing since his son came, which he gives them crosses to bear that His name might be glorified. 
Now, I've given you, I've told you there's good news. I told you there's bad news. The good news was that God means to refine you, Christian. The bad news is that it's going to hurt sometimes. The best news is that refining has this goal, which is gold that lasts forever. Let's go back to the text in Proverbs. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The goal of the whole thing is to refine you into This is so vague, but we'll just start here and work our way in. Into something beautiful. The point of the dross analogy in Ezekiel 22.18, the point of saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze, tin, iron, lead in the furnace, dross of silver. Is to say, again, if you didn't hear it, there's no precious thing left here. Do you understand, Israel? You have so thoroughly given yourselves over to idols that there's only dross here. And in response, the people were saying to God, but you don't mean like only dross, right? Like we're still doing okay. But what I want to make clear, and what what has to be made clear probably every time we, we preach a text like this, we go through a text like this together, is that judgment texts like this are not meant to drive you to despair, Christian. Like You're, you're not supposed to look at a, the, like the judgment text in Ezekiel and say, huh, well, it sounds like those people were really far from God and that they were chasing after idols. And huh, I'm really far from God and I chased after a number of idols. Guess I'm cooked and done for then. Not the point at all. Not the point at all. The text is not to inspire despair. It is to pull you off the edge of the despair cliff. You are supposed to read this and say, God, don't let my heart get like this. I see what spiritual deafness, what spiritual blindness looks like. And it is so tragically ugly and drossy and nasty. Lord, save me. In that moment, in a real sense, your Lord Jesus comes near and says, I see some gold underneath that dross. Don't look so surprised I put it there. One of the most offensive things, honestly, that Christianity teaches is that God means to change you into what you're supposed to be and you're not there yet. Okay? God means to change you into what you're supposed to be and you're not there yet. This is really offensive because the teaching that you and I hear in all sorts of places, and I'm, I'm thinking again culturally and, and just in the world around us, is figure out who you are and then be that no matter what anybody says. Okay, Figure out who you are and then be that no matter what anybody says. Jesus is different. and I, I don't, it, it, it doesn't matter like how, how nice of an image of Jesus you ha- have from, from TV or from wherever else. The Jesus Christ of Scripture comes near and says, you don't even know the real you yet. You haven't met the real you yet. The person that I will make you into. The one you were actually meant to be. The gold that I have designed underneath all that dross that I'm going to get out. I cannot wait to introduce you. Come and follow me. So to all who believe in Jesus, I can make you a promise. He will change you. He will change you. He will refine you. 
He will remove your dross. And probably not in the ways you expect. Probably not in the, like the priority list order you had in mind. You think your disorganization needs to get burned up. But the Lord seems to be working a lot harder on your pride. You think you need more knowledge and understanding. God seems to be working on your courage. You think maybe you need a husband or wife or a better version of your husband or wife. God seems to be a bit more focused on your patience and your maturity. (laughs) God means to refine His people. He means to do it. He means to do it. Sometimes that comes with growing pains. Sometimes it hurts. That's the good news. That's the bad news. But the best news that we've got is the hope that God gives us and calls us then to give to each other and speak to each other and sing to each other is that in His kingdom, there is no such thing as meaningless affliction that justifies despair. So I'm going to do something now that I don't think I've ever done in a sermon, which is I'm going to give you an illustration that's quite long. (laughs) And so stick with me for a bit. It's from one of my favorite books, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Pretty much all of you know that I'm an appreciator of Lewis. I don't agree with everything he said, but I'm still blessed by almost everything he said. One of his lesser-known books is called The Great Divorce. It's a fantastical tale about a group of people in hell who take a bus ride across the Great Divide to heaven and arrive at the gates, and almost nobody wants to stay. Because to stay, you'd have to bow the knee to Jesus And the visitors from below, even though they are clearly and obviously miserable, are still angry at the very thought of worshiping anyone other than themselves. Interesting premise. That's as much as I'm going to give him. Interesting. With a few exceptions, though, there is one remarkable moment in the story when one of the visitors from below is talking with an angel. And he has the visitor from below who's simply called a ghost because he is a ghost of the man he used to be. Uh, has a little red lizard on his shoulder. And it's twitching like a whip, and it's whispering things in his ear. And the more the lizard whispers to the man, the more he starts to draw back from the gates of heaven and slowly walk back to the bus. And then an angel speaks up and says, uh, are you leaving so soon? And he says, yes, yes, I'm off. Thanks for all your hospitality. It's, it's nice and all, but, but I, it's no good. You see, I told this little, little chap here, my, this little lizard on my shoulder, that, that he'd have to be quiet if he came. He promised he would be. But of course, he doesn't belong here. I realize that. But he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. The lizard is a, a, represent, a representation of the man's besetting sin. The angel says, would you like me to make him quiet? Well, of course I would, said the man. The angel nodded and said, then I will kill him. And the fellow immediately jumps back and says, ah, don't touch me, that burns. Refinement. The angel says, well, don't you want him to die? He says, you didn't say anything about killing him first. I don't want to be a bother. I didn't mean to bother you with anything as drastic as all that. The angel says, it's the only way. And his burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? And the man says something like, can we at least talk about this first? I I just wanted you to make him be quiet so he would stop embarrassing me. Can I kill it? I just just want you to make him quiet for right now. We can discuss killing it later. We'll have some time to talk about it. There's no time. May I kill it? I think he's gone to sleep. Wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, he's, he's asleep now. We won't bother you again. Can I kill it? 
Honestly, I really don't think it's necessary. I'm sure he'll be able to keep it under control. Let's think maybe about a gradual process. We can kill it over the next few years. There is no gradual process, and it is of no use to you. I mean, I would let you. I really would. I'm just not feeling really great right now, a little bit ill. Today's really not the best day for me. When I'm in better form, then maybe we can talk. Now is your time, and today is your day. I won't tell you again to step back. You're burning me. It hurts. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. That is not so. What, you're hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt. I said it wouldn't kill you. Okay, you think I'm a coward. But it, is, it isn't that. Really, it isn't. Let me, let me run back by tonight's bus. I'll get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll come back the moment I can. This moment contains all moments. I mean, that's a profound statement. What he's saying is, you don't lack time, you lack action. Tomorrow you'll have another moment just like this one, and you'll, and you'll then do the same thing you did in this moment, which is put it off. Right? So this moment contains all moments. What you need is action. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill it without asking before I knew? It would be all over. The angel just said something like, I cannot kill it until you answer my question. What's your question? Can I kill it? Then the angel reaches for the lizard. The lizard wakes up and starts whispering in the man's ear. Be careful. He can do it. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live like that? You'd only be a ghost and not a real man. He doesn't understand. Might be natural for him, but it's not for us. Yes. I I, I know, I admit, there are not really any pleasures in your life now, only dreams. But aren't those dreams better than nothing? And and, and it'll, it'll get better. I admit, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Then the angel cuts him off. Can I kill it? And the man says, I know, it's, I know if you do it, it's going to kill me. The angel says, it won't, but supposing it did. Supposing it did. And the fellow says, well, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. May I kill it? At first, the man yells angrily, go on, go on, get it over with. But then he falls to his knees, whispering, God help me. God help me. The angel grabs the lizard and it screams and turns to ash. There's this blinding light and when it all settles, the man doesn't look like a ghost anymore. He looks like a man, strong and at peace. And the ashes of this lizard rise up and they form a stallion. And this new man is seated on this like magnificent horse. Here's the point. Some of you have something like the little red lizard on your shoulder. Maybe it's your anger or bitterness over a tragedy or over an affliction that the Lord has given you to bear. Your anger over it. And you will rest in Christ as soon as you finish raging. How's that going? Can he kill it? Maybe it's that your suffering has become your identity. This happens quite a lot, actually, where we can start to love our identity as the sufferer or the wounded victim because it means that you're always the center of attention and you can always make people listen to you when you complain and, and your needs always have to come before everybody else's. Maybe it's a besetting sin that you just can't seem to shake. Maybe it's a sin pattern 
that you've just declared part of your life so you can protect it and keep it safe so that nobody kills it. And the God of heaven comes to you this morning saying, this sin here, this matter that's destroying you, can I kill it? But he doesn't just kill troublesome warts and lizards. He turns them into stallions. What does does that mean? Well, what saints through the ages have discovered is that their deepest trials that would, by all appearances, threaten to drag them into the very pits of death, they end up entrusting those things to the refiner's fire, and what comes back to them are gifts of the fruit of the Spirit that are untouchable. People who have seen their anger problems crucified and put to death are some of the most gentle people you will ever meet. People who have been torn apart by addiction and then put back together by the Lord Jesus are especially able to speak hope and steadiness to those who are addicted. People who have desperately craved the spotlight and to be the center of attention and have seen the lizard burned up, they've found their joy in serving others and in noticing all of the blessings of God rather than being eaten up by the need to be noticed. So, I just I, maybe you can tell the reason why I shared this, the the bit from the great divorce with you this this idea of God drawing near and just saying can I kill it trusting the refiner's fire is a tall order and that's for everyone it's kind of like trusting a surgeon right if you're going in for surgery you have to trust that he knows exactly where to make those cuts so that you can be whole again trusting this God who sanctifies you who refines you like gold in the fire. It means you have to trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. So what is it for you this morning? The the red lizard on the shoulder that whispers, you'll be nothing without me. Meanwhile, the voice of your Savior in the Scriptures is calling you to repentance. Can I kill it? So what does this look like? I mean, broadly speaking, I mean, it kind of depends on your situation. Maybe you hear a sermon like this and you say, you know what, Brian, I tried that. I went into my closet and I confessed my sin and I said, Lord Jesus, take it and kill it. And he didn't do it. To some extent, I want to encourage you with a reminder that the metaphor we're working with here is the refiner's fire, not the refiner's microwave. Okay? The refiner's fire, not the refiner's microwave. We are a microwave people. God's metaphors that he seems to like best for himself are like blacksmith, farmer, carpenter. Work that takes time. Right? Refinement's not a microwave. But also, also let me just ask, whatever the, whatever the besetting thing was, did you tell anybody? Because here's the thing. When we're told in Scripture to confess sin... It is almost never to the four walls of an empty room. Okay? Some of you really need to hear that this morning. When we are called to confess sin, it is almost never to the four walls of an empty room. I'm not saying that it's sinful to confess sin to God in prayer, four walls of an empty room. That's not a sin. I just, if, certainly if it's like a besetting sin that's been weighing you down, you are not finished yet, my dear brother, my dear sister. Confession of sin is meant to go from your lips to somebody's ears. Okay? From your lips to somebody's ears. That's most basically what confession is. To begin to tie this up, I want to close with First uh, Peter chapter 1. In this, he's talking about the gospel, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, look at the, look at the merciful qualifiers that Peter gives. In this you rejoice, though now, number one, for a little while. Okay, so that's the time. Number two, if necessary, that's the importance. You've been grieved by various trials. But he goes on to promise glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ so that you are with Him forever. And because God said it was completely necessary. So, so juxtaposing those two things, the, the suffering is temporary, being refined, and the product that comes out by the hand and grace and wisdom and kindness of God is what will last forever. This is all going somewhere. This, this work that God, the great metallurgist, is doing with you and me and us. On the last day, the Lord Jesus means to supply you with endless excuses to brag about His goodness. That's what He means to do. That's right. So, so the gold gets uh, tested, uh, tested by fire. Why? So that it results in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the new heavens and the new earth, you will regale your undying brothers and sisters with stories of a good blacksmith king who shaped you into the very image of his son. And sometimes it hurt, but will you look at me now? Will you just look at what he's done? Is it not remarkable? It is so nice to finally meet the real me. All that dross cleared away. And all of it by His grace and kindness alone. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father, thank You for these good promises of Your nearness to us and Your promise that You're not finished with us. That when we face affliction, I pray, and I pray for those who this morning are, are really bearing up under heavy affliction and having to wonder aloud, what is it that you are doing? I pray that you would keep from them, very far from them, the temptation to believe that suffering is like a kind of riddle that we have to solve, and once we solve it or, or get the right knowledge from it, then, then, it, then it can stop. Uh, instead, I pray that you would supply us with strength, with trust in you with love for our neighbor, with love for God, and with the faith to believe that our God loves us, that He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Indeed, these are hard things to believe. So we pray for the faith for it. And Father, for those who are weak, which I'm pretty sure is just basically all of us in this room, for those of us who are weak and struggling to believe and confess and say amen when you say things like this, bring us to this table where you feed us with faith and grace to keep on going, to keep on trusting, to keep on loving. Here you feed us with, as it were, heavenly food that brings us to you, that brings us to the forgiveness of our sins and in some mysterious sense wakes us up on the last day. So to God be the glory. Great things He has done. In Jesus' name, amen.